0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Today's podcast features CEW Plus's 2006 Twink Fry visiting social activist, Anne Ladke. Ann is a lifelong advocate for economic justice, committed to expanding opportunities for women and people of color in the Chicago region. From 1985 until 2017, she served as Executive Director of Women Employed, a 50-year organization whose mission is to improve women's economic status and remove barriers to economic equity. And currently serves as a senior advisor to the Corporate Coalition of Chicago, an executive committee member of the Chicago Community Trust, and as a board member of the Civic Counseling Consulting Alliance. And it's my honor to speak with you today. Welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Can you please start us off by introducing yourself and telling us how you got started in this work?
2: Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm happy to sort of roll this back quite a ways to the uh, early 70s when I first got involved in the women's movement. Encouraged by co-workers, I was working with them at an educational publishing company in Chicago, and we got together to raise issues there about sexism in the textbooks, work issues, say related to maternity leave, and family issues, and we started really a formal group that was one of the first in-company caucuses of women in the country. We did a campaign within the company to try to reduce the amount of sexism in the textbooks and publish guidelines for that that went all over the country. We then started a citywide group, Women in Publishing. So that was all, you know, new organizing for me. I'd been involved in student movement things before that, but this was new for me and I learned a lot and went on to become active in the National Organization for Women and then helped start Women Employed. My interest was always in the economic issues and so Women Employed was perfect place for me because it was really all about women being treated equally fairly in the workplace. So I was a volunteer until I joined the Women Employed Staff in 1977 as a staff organizer. Can you please take us back to
1: 2006 and share the focus for your Twink Fry Visiting Social Activist project and
2: why, at the time, it was critical to do
1: this set of work?
2: Well, I proposed when I learned about the opportunity, I proposed focusing on women's concentration in low-paid, low-opportunity jobs. A lot of Women Employed success in its early years was related to our ability to win enforcement of equal opportunity and affirmative action laws and requirements. And it was difficult at that time, and still is really, to make progress for women who couldn't benefit from those laws and regulations because they weren't in jobs that were comparable to what men did. So they perhaps didn't have the education and advantages to, say, come out of college and be an entry-level professional worker where we could make equal opportunity and affirmative action work for them. So they might be in caregiving jobs or other female-dominated professions and the sort of equal-to-men analysis really wasn't helpful. These were female-dominated professions. And so it was very difficult to make progress on these issues. Unions are a very, very important way to do that. But I think that you know history shows that in the 70s and 80s, there was tremendous opposition from employers to organizing among white-collar workers. And so unions were not as much the vehicle as I wish they were then and now. So I wanted to do some research and explore more issues around low wage work, the value of these jobs, to explore whether a business case could be made for improving the jobs. And I felt that time in university with the intellectual resources of the University of Michigan would be a great place to do that. So that's what I decided to focus in on.
1: Yeah, you mentioned something that has come up in several meetings. I'm with a group that's planning Equal Pay Day for the university and the state of Michigan. We're trying to initiate something in collaboration with the AAUW. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's come up regularly is the impact of unions on equal pay. And then the second piece of that that keeps regularly coming up is the disparities of what equal payday means and how it's calibrated to typically Caucasian women, and then the equal paydays throughout the year that represent when women of color are earning the same wage as their male counterparts. You just mentioned unions, which spark this. When you think about unions and their impact on equal pay, like how have you seen that play out over the years?
2: Well, unions have always been at the forefront of equal pay. They want their members to benefit from union representation equally. Unions, in fact, were very important in the formation and early launch of many women's organizations, including now and Women Employed. I think that, you know, we know that unions have their weaknesses and have some aspects of their history that are not anything to be proud of in terms of the way that women and people of color have been treated. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, they are still the most important vehicle for people getting decent working conditions and equal pay. Mm -hmm. There are ways in which union contracts don't necessarily tackle the problem of low wages in fields like caregiving Mm -hmm. because often those pay rates are determined by public policy. So there are ways in which there are barriers to the work of unions on equal pay. But overall, women do best when they have a union contract and or a college degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how else have you seen the landscape
1: surrounding equal pay and gender equity in the workforce? How have you seen the landscape change over time?
2: Well, one main area where it's changed over time is just what you were talking about, which is that I think we see a much greater focus on separating out equal payday for all women and then equal payday for women of color, specific race and ethnicities, because those disparities are so important to highlight and they require special attention, organizing, and policy. So that's one way in which it's changed. Another way in which it's changed, I think, is that we made strong efforts during the 80s and 90s to bring a comparability lens to the issue of equal pay, so that there were efforts, for example, to say, well, if warehouse workers make X per hour, is it reasonable for them to make more per hour, say, than someone taking care of children? Mm -hmm. How are we valuing these jobs and so on? That actually was not successful because of the legal frameworks involved. So there's really never been a way to push forward on that except in public awareness terms. So I would say that was not a success. But there are many ways in which we have, have definitely been successful. For example, laws that prohibit employers from asking about prior salary history. Mm-hmm. And that those are very important advances. I think that prior salary history as an ask on an employment application is responsible for a lot of unequal pay. So getting rid of that is extremely important. Some of the internet services that spread information about pay and pay rates, I think have been very helpful to individuals as they navigate pay conversations with their employers, You know, just things that weren't accessible to individuals years ago. So there's definitely been progress. On the equal pay issues, there's a a lot more to do, especially when it comes to female-dominated professions, but Mm -hmm. I think that right now, because we have a tight labor market, that can help with equal pay as well, because employers have to attract people, and they're not going to do it if women walk in the door and learn right away that they're paid less than men in comparable jobs.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, now you've called your time as a TFVSA tremendously enriching. How has the program affected your work in the 17 years since?
2: Well, initially, it was just a terrific learning experience for me to have been able to delve into the research and to have been connected to individuals who were doing really important and interesting work studying low-wage jobs. So I was introduced to Professor Jane Dutton, who -hmm. was a professor of organizational development at the Ross School, Mm -hmm. and a network of people that had been her students and others who were doing what is called positive organizational scholarship Mm -hmm. with her guidance, looking at where the practices are that actually make workplaces better and make workplaces places where people can thrive. And I learned so much from her and her colleagues. And I was able to bring a lot of that back to Women Employed. Professor Dutton came to Women Employed and spoke and we had a lot of corporate people in the audience because she had a lot of expertise on how businesses could change to be more equitable, to be healthier as workplaces. So this is, you know, long before we really started to talk about healthy cultures in workplaces. Mm-hmm. But think she was ahead of the curve. So that was the immediate impact. I think over time it did a number of things. One, it fundamentally strengthened our work on behalf of low-paid working women and set the stage for policy campaigns like campaigns for paid sick days, for getting rid of salary history questions, for reasonable accommodations for pregnant workers, things that we could do at the state and local levels here in our region and really make a difference for women workers in their daily lives and, of course, all the men who benefit from these policies as well. Mm -hmm. It gave us, I think, additional arguments to make to the business community about how treating their women workers more fairly could be influential on their business success and strengthen our moral argument. I think we were able to show other organizations convincingly that the issues were not just about getting women and other marginalized workers more skills and more training, even though that can be very good for people. It's important for some, but some very important jobs that are actually highly skilled are undervalued Mm -hmm. because women do them. And so we really have to focus in on that. Because people have a tendency to default to education. Well, if the person just got more skills, they just got more education, you know, Mm -hmm. they'd be able to get ahead. And we know that that's not true. So Mm -hmm. I think we got more organizations involved in being concerned about the quality of jobs in the economy uh, because of the work that I was able to do in my time as a visiting social activist.
1: Building on what you just said, there's a practice that's pretty common, which is benchmarking to the market when it determines salary. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we notice even within CEW is how social workers in particular, educators are paid less because they're typically female-led fields. And so when you're benchmarking to the market, the rates are just much lower than what you see in other fields that are male-dominated. Do you have any advice about how to get out of that pattern of perpetuating lower pay for women's work? It seems like even at the university where we have this practice, it's a hard argument to fight because because the competitiveness with the market means that we can afford people at different rates.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, there are very, very strong disincentives to change because this kind of change can be costly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not in the business of arguing that some Uh, Occupations should be downgraded so that we can uplift others. Mm -hmm. So this is difficult. But I think that the effort has to be around advocating and educating about the fact that market studies are themselves full of bias. Mm -hmm. And that internal equity is also important based on the skills and experience required to do the jobs. So, you know, the social workers have advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. They have very critical work that they do with human beings that requires a lot of judgment and, in lots of cases, expertise. And so more pressure and advocacy has to go around the internal valuing mm-hmm. and to reduce the percentage of the compensation study that relies on market.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting, to reduce the weight of the market on the overall compensation packages. Yes. For women who might be experiencing discrimination or other barriers on their paths to success, you know, what have you learned over the years about what they can do to help advocate for themselves?
2: Well, there are probably a fairly long list, and of course, each option has to be thought through in terms of what an individual's life circumstances are and what their situation is. I would say, I can say that in this labor market, which maybe we couldn't have said in, say, 2008, but Mm -hmm. in this labor market, I would say vote with your feet. If you're being discriminated against and you don't like the environment or you're being harassed or there's a culture of, of sexism where you work, Get out and Mm -hmm. work someplace else. And, you know, that's not always the easiest thing to do. I understand that people have a lot of pressures in their lives. They can't always stop everything and job hunt. But in this labor market, I think it's the first thing to do because you have to be emotionally and mentally healthy. And it's very hard to be when you know you're being discriminated against. I think it's always important for people to learn their rights and understand what they might be able to do internally in conversation with HR. I think that it's always good for individuals to connect with organizations that can provide a supportive environment and just help keep people's spirits up when they're trying to to fight discrimination. Mm -hmm. I would say once you know more about your rights and have read up and you feel you have a substantive case, I would say go to a lawyer or file a complaint with the government. Again, this has to be considered in the context of individual circumstances because that's not right for everybody's life. It's very hard to win discrimination cases. But it can be done, and I've seen it, and it can be very important not only for the individual but for other women Mm -hmm. to lodge these cases and win them. And then I would say... It's important to think about and be clear about what's important to you as an individual. What does it mean for you to be in a good place of employment? In other words, where are you in your career? Is the most important thing for you to have a good, open, supportive culture? Is the most important thing for you to be in a place that has tuition reimbursement because you have a career goal and you have to move toward it and you can move faster? If you get tuition reimbursement, is it about being on a career pathway and needing a particular kind of experience? So what does it mean for you to want to work in a company that's right for you? You have to be clear about what's important to you at the stage of career that you're in. So I guess that kind of brings us full circle to the idea (laughs) of if you're going to be looking for a new job, you need to be thinking about what's important. And what's going to be meaningful for you, because it may be, all right, this job may pay a little more, this one a little less, but this one has tuition reimbursement and a culture of advancing people. I might do that, even though I might be sacrificing some money, or in my life right now, I can't sacrifice a nickel. I need to get the higher paying job. So those are the things that I think people need to think of, because it's very tough to change the circumstances of discrimination, You have to balance that with your own well-being and your own future. Mm -hmm. Is it
1: worth it to fight discrimination on behalf of yourself and others who might encounter the company, or best to move on?
2: In some cases, you can do both. I Mm -hmm. mean, you can can review that company online. You can talk to people about whether to work there or not. You can be part of an organization that supports women who are being discriminated against and, and let people know. But... In some cases, I just was talking to a friend of mine who's an employment rights lawyer, and she's just won a really important case for two women who joined together in this lawsuit against an auto dealership, and they're going to get meaningful back pay. But they were both in a circumstance where they were willing to take the years that it took to litigate this and get a remedy. Mm -hmm. So it's not for everyone.
1: Right. I'd imagine when you mention years
2: in litigation
1: that there's a high cost to that. Are there organizations that can help with the litigation cost or organizations that do pro bono work in these types of situations?
2: I would say not usually. There are law firms that take these cases on contingency if they think that you have a strong case. Mm -hmm. But no, there's not. In general, I wouldn't say there's pro bono help for this kind of case. We have our
1: Twink Fry Visiting Social Activist application open now. When you think to what you hope another person would get out of their Visiting Social Activist and what they might put in their application, what advice would you give to them as they consider applying?
2: The Visiting Social Activist program is a wonderful opportunity to get away from the day-to-day in your organization. So I would just say think creatively about what you would like to explore. You can't take on the world, it's not a year, it's weeks, so it has to be concrete enough to get done in that time frame. But I would say, think about something that's going to open your mind, give you a new way of thinking about things, and enable you to take advantage of the intellectual richness that is available at the university. I mean, I went to college before the internet was invented, so... I just had no idea what the research capabilities are of a big library that can be accessed remotely in a modern university. So that was a revelation to me. But the more important aspect of it was really finding the people in the university, which CEW was so helpful with, finding the people in the university who could really enlighten me about where the thinking was and where the research was in the area that was important to me. So I would say think big, but realistically, think about what could take you out of your day-to-day a little bit and point you toward the future.
1: There are many students on campus who are very passionate and activated right now about creating change. And it's a historical aspect of the University of Michigan in particular what advice would you give to those students who are just starting to become activists or advocates about how to best go about creating change?
2: I think students have to think about what are the issues I really care about. And the great thing about being at a big school like the University of Michigan is that there are lots of opportunities to explore that and to try and identify what your passion is. There's opportunities to experiment, kind of sample things, And then I would say when you have a better grip on that, something that really gets you up in the morning, then there are opportunities to integrate that into your academic work, which is terrific. I think there's much more opportunity for that than there was even a couple of decades ago. And then I would say use the opportunity of being there to learn about the cause you're interested in with an open mind. And... You have the opportunity to understand various points of view, to be careful about being doctrinaire when you're trying to learn, and try to find a way to make a contribution. Because it could be at various levels. It could be that you're going to chair a student group. It could be that you're going to put on a symposium. It could be that you're going to just do some recruitment. But just find a way to be an addition, to move something forward. And then I would say don't give it up when you stop being a student. Try to figure out how to carry that forward after you graduate and make sure that activism and advocacy are integrated in your life from the very beginning of your post-college career. Make time for it because I think it often is really a very, very important way to make sure your life has meaning. And so I would just say both in school and afterward. I think it needs to be part of everybody's life. Now, this is
1: one of my favorite questions to ask all Twink Fry visiting social activists. And so far, it's been mixed on how many can actually answer it. So I'm going to give it a try here. Activism, it takes a great amount of passion combined with energy to make happen. What type of self-care practices do you utilize to be able to maintain your sense of balance?
2: Perhaps something I wish I had been more clear about early in the game is to understand the long view that a lot of the issues that many of us care about in the social justice world or in now in my work for economic justice, in especially in the areas of Chicago that have been historically disinvested, these are problems and challenges that took decades and decades and decades to build up to where they are now we're not going to solve it overnight but we also can't be patient so that's the balance question right now understand that it's a long game and that you have to apply the energy that you have to make progress as quickly as possible so that's for everybody to think through it's important to know when to take a break if you're a person who needs to take a break at a certain time of day or a certain time of the year or the week, you should do it. For me, it's always been about getting outside, getting some exercise, being around people who are optimistic. doesn't mean everybody in your circle has to be an optimist, but you better have some people in your circle who are (laughs) optimists. Don't put off things that you know would be a way to change the subject sometimes mentally whether it's going to a movie or taking a long weekend in a great place if you can afford to do that or whether it's just taking the subway to see a friend that you don't see often enough or whatever it is I think you have to just be in touch with what gives you satisfaction what gives meaning to your life and find ways to take breaks to take care of it and the good thing is you know there's more flexibility in the work world now it's easier to go out and take a walk at 11 o'clock in the morning and come back, go back to work than it used to be. So I think people should take advantage of that at the same time that they don't, I don't think it's good to be sort of episodically intense and then burn out and then have to take a long break and then go back at it. I think we have to learn how to have balance between knowing it's the long view and in the case of what the work I'm doing here in Chicago, understanding that people on the south and west sides of Chicago should not have to wait any longer Mm -hmm. for the investment and the quality of life that they deserve to have.
1: Mm -hmm. And it has been an absolute pleasure and inspiration to learn from you today. Thank you so much for participating in the podcast.
2: Well, it was my pleasure. And i So proud of having an association with the Center for the Education of Women, and I applaud what you're doing there, and it's been fun talking.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires Peoples: the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.